Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we want to take a moment to wait upon you, to recognize your presence, to give you the opportunity to speak to us. Would you give us ears to hear what your voice would speak to our hearts tonight? Let's take a moment to talk with the Lord, things that are on your heart from today, things of rejoicing, things of burden. Father, we thank you that we know how things are going to end. We know that you have the final word. We know that there's going to be heaven that's awaiting for us. And as we study this end part of Revelation over the next few weeks, would you really encourage us and fill us with hope? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We learn a lot from talking with people when they're at the end of their days. I remember a man that went to our fellowship by the name of Clancy, and he got diagnosed uh, for cancer. And he invited me to come and just sit with him as he would prepare for some cancer treatments. And those were some of the best talks, the best conversations that I've ever had. And he was sharing how the pain was so difficult that he couldn't get through the day without asking for help and strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he would really encourage me to wake up each day and say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for today? And to follow the leading of the Spirit and experience the the power of the Spirit. And when he went home to be with the Lord, that lesson really uh, stuck with me. And he was a loyal man. He was loyal to Christ, loyal to his family, even loyal to his car. He owned like the same car for 30 years and it was a Volkswagen bug and he loved that, that vehicle. I remember my last conversation with my grandma Cartier. Uh, she was a, a very unique woman, six foot, one inch tall for her generation. Her name's Marion Cartier and she had quite the personality. She was ornery at times, uh, but for some reason, her and I always got along. Maybe because I'm a little ornery as well, okay? So, Amber and I were married, and uh, we knew that she was passing away of cancer, and she was in her elderly years. We went out to visit her, and then the last few months of her life, she moved out of her home and into a smaller apartment and was getting some uh, in-home care. And one of the issues for my grandma through her life was was money. God had blessed her with a lot of money, but it was a stumbling point uh, uh, for her to where it was hard for her to enjoy uh, simple things. If it was Thanksgiving and it was time to get some Martinelli's to celebrate uh, Thanksgiving, some, you know, sparkling cider. She's like, no, we can't do that. You know, we can't afford that when really she could afford it. And I remember her talking with Amber and I, and she says, wait here, uh, you know, I want to, I'll be right back. And she goes to her little bedroom in her apartment, and she comes out, and, and she had written a check, not to me, but to Amber. <laughs> and even though she liked me, uh, she always liked Amber a little more than she liked me. Uh, she said, I just really want to bless you guys, and I want to I want to bless you, Amber, and give this, this money uh, uh, to you. And us, uh, you knew in our marriage, uh, it was a huge blessing that she uh, gave to us, and it was more than the money. It was, it was her heart of saying, I'm proud of you guys, and I, 
and I love you guys. And it was also a point in her life of, of here I am passing away and having that victory in uh, generosity. But that was a lesson uh, for me. And when we get to the end of the Bible, we get to the, the end of the story, we're seeing the last days. Not only the tribulation, but the second coming of Christ. And Christ ruling and reigning for a thousand years. And what are the lessons that we can learn from the last days? It's one thing to go through this chapter and understand what's happening and what's taking place. Christ has returned. We saw that last week. And now he rules and reigns for a thousand years. Satan's bound for a thousand years, is released after that period, gets one more opportunity to deceive the hearts of men. The chapter then ends with the great white throne judgment. Those that are written in the Lamb's book of life, experiencing eternal life, but those who aren't in the Lamb's book of life, eternal condemnation. To just focus on the details of it and to not learn the lessons. To go, okay, I I get the events that are taking place, but what is God trying to teach us about himself? What is he trying to teach us about our own lives as we look at these events? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. John is witnessing these things. And picture this. Try to picture this in your mind. Here comes an angel, and the angel has a key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, and he also has a great chain uh, in his hand. If you see someone walking around with a great chain, you would probably assume that there's some beast, there's some creature that they're going after. In verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Dragon refers to the character of Satan, that he's a beast. The serpent of old is his origin, the snake who has been deceiving for such a long time. The devil means slanderer, Satan means adversary, and now it's his moment where he's going to be bound. He's going to be bound for a thousand years this millennial reign of Christ. Millennium meaning a thousand years. The first lesson for us tonight is that God is the ultimate authority. God's the ultimate authority. A lot of times we think that there's this cosmic battle between God and Satan of who's going to win, that they're equally matched. But that's not the case at all. Satan is no match for God. When it comes down to Satan being locked up for a thousand years, he sends a angel, just a rank-and-file angel. It's not even Michael, the archangel, the toughest, the baddest angel of them all. It's just a normal angel. We could just say Joe Angel, right? He doesn't even get his name recorded for us in Revelation. He comes down with a chain, he comes down with a key, and he's able to take Satan and say, Satan, now you're bound, and you're going to stay in the abyss for a thousand years. Remember in Matthew's gospel where you have the demons being cast out and they pleaded with Christ not to be thrown into the abyss, not to be put into this bottomless pit. And so what did Jesus do? He cast the demons into the pigs and the pigs went off into the Sea of Galilee. So this is this place that's reserved for for judgment, and Satan's going to be locked up for a thousand years. So please understand this, that God is the authority. This is why when we're experiencing spiritual battle in our lives and in our community, that God tells us to submit to him, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now the devil is an adversary. The devil is out to get us. 
There's no question about it. We're in the spiritual battle, but God is the authority, and he's already won the victory through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because Christ is in us, and our position in Christ, the armor of God, we can resist the enemy and he will flee. God's the ultimate authority. So you're probably wondering at this point, why is Satan bound for a thousand years instead of thrown into the lake of fire and no longer able to harass the hearts of men and women? Well, we're going to get to that in just a little bit. Verse 3, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So he can no longer deceive the hearts of men during this thousand years. He's shut up. He's locked up. There's a seal that's placed upon him. But at the end of the thousand years, he's released for a little while. We'll see in a few more verses when he's released many of the nations follow Satan and come against Christ, even though they've been under Christ's leadership for a thousand years without the influence of Satan. So this is the second lesson I think it's really important for us, and it's that God values an authentic relationship. You might be saying, well, what do you mean? Because if Satan's not released for a brief period, those that are living during the millennial period, that thousand-year period, really have no opportunity to genuinely choose the Lord because there's no evil. There's no Satan to follow. And so when they're presented with evil and they're presented with with Satan, they're presented with a choice, and many of them choose Satan. And God is a believer of free will. And this is a mystery that God gives to us is that he ordains us, he chooses us, he predestines us. He's the one who authors salvation but he also gives us a choice. Satan had a choice. The fallen angels had a choice. The reason that they're fallen is because they chose to rebel against God. They chose to not want to have anything to do with God. And from our perspective, we go, well, why in the world would God let him out? Well, why in the world has God delayed his judgment so long up until this point? You know, why is Satan still allowed to be able to deceive? Because God is giving people the choice to genuinely choose him. So I think that this applies to our hearts and lives today. Churches, we want to choose the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We want to follow him. We want to we love him. Every day, we're given an opportunity to love the Lord. He has chosen us. He wants to be in relationship with us. But for us to choose him as well, to be in authentic relationship with the Lord as well. It's beautiful. It's a relationship where we're responding to the Lord and saying, God, I want to be close to you. So verse four, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So now John sees those that had been martyred for their relationship with Christ by the Antichrist. They refused to take on the mark of the beast, and now they're resurrected, and they're ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand-year period. Let's pause for a little bit in our Bible study because some of you might be saying, 
I don't know what the millennium is. And could you please explain to me who, who is in the millennium? What is it? Millennium simply is a thousand year period of time. And in Revelation 20, we see a thousand years referenced to six times. And there's some that look at this and, and they see it purely as an allegory. They don't think it's a literal chunk of time where Christ isn't going to come back and rule and reign. But then you're left with a conundrum because the rest of the book of Revelation, they do take time literally. So if it says three and a half years in Revelation, everybody goes, that's three and a half years. And so now when you get to this point where God's so specific and he says a thousand years six times, it seems like an abusive interpretation to go, well, this is simply an allegory. So millennium is a thousand year period of time. Those that lived through the tribulation, those that survived the tribulation, will be the people that are inhabiting the earth and having children and populating. Christ in the last chapter, chapter 19, returns upon Mount Zion, is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. And those that were martyred are ruling and reigning with him. And we'll see also that the saints are ruling and reigning with Christ as well. To me personally, this is one of the most far out aspects of scripture where we don't get a lot of detail. It's clear from this chapter that Christ is going to rule and reign for a thousand years and we get to reign with him, but we don't have a lot of details otherwise. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 65 and we see this time period referred to there as well. Isaiah 65 verse 17 in the Old Testament <clears throat> just before the book of Jeremiah. So Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And it describes this time, this millennial period of, of Christ ruling and reigning. For more shall, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. That's going to be glorious, isn't it? Isn't that one of the most brutal things when an infant only lives a few days? Nor an old man who's not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old. So if you die at a hundred during this period, you're young. You died in your youth if you died at a hundred. Can you imagine? I can't, I don't know if I want to be a hundred. You know what I'm saying? But the sinner being 100 years old, shall be accused. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So it's going to be a time of great prosperity. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Can you imagine? 
normally animals that are in an adversarial relationship, one is clearly dinner, right? Are just hanging out together. The wolf and the lamb. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Lion full on went vegetarian, right? Turns into a peaceful creature. He shall eat straw like a cow, and dust shall be the servants, the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So that's a little bit about this millennial period. Let's go back to Revelation and continue into verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So what is this referring to, the rest of the dead? We have some dead that are, are raised to rule and reign with Christ. Those are martyred. These are those that their name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who died during this time period, they're not going to be raised until after the thousand-year period at the great white throne judgment. goes on to describe the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The first resurrection is referring to those who are in Christ. Those that are in Christ, that have died before the rapture, that are risen with Christ when the rapture takes place, those that are in Christ that died during the tribulation period, the first fruits of the resurrection. God is going to resurrect us to a glorified body. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15 very, very clearly. And when you're part of the first resurrection by faith in the gospel, then the second death has no power over you. So what in the world is the second death? Is this cryptic language? The first death is your physical death. The second death is your spiritual death. For those that don't know Christ as their Savior, that are eternally separated from God. So those that are part of the resurrection, for those that are in Christ, they shall be priests of God, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. God has made us a royal priesthood. So during this thousand-year period, we're going to get to serve as priests with the Lord, and also he's going to give us assignments to do. So here's the third lesson. Ready? Believers have a lot to look forward to. We got a lot to look forward to. Maybe life here seems pretty mundane, and you're like, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. It's another day of work, trying to pay the bills, trying to get out of debt, stay out of debt, yada, 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 right? And the thing about life is it's repetitive. It just continues happening, continues to, to take place. But eventually, we're going to enter into this thousand-year period. Eventually, we're going to enter into all of eternity with the Lord. Paul was very concerned about faithfulness in his life, the Apostle Paul. And he encouraged us to run the race to win. And he's saved. He knows he's saved. He knows he's the child of God. But he wants to live his life in faithfulness so that he can win the prize. Jesus told us, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. It seems to be the way that we live now is going to determine the responsibilities that we're given in heaven and the responsibilities that we're given in the millennial kingdom. It's all grace, 
Because we're saved by grace. If there's any faithfulness in our lives, it's because of, of God's grace. But Paul realized, you know what? The way that I live my life right now is going to matter. We don't experience the great white throne judgment as believers, but we do experience the bema seat judgment. What is that? Paul wrote about our lives passing through a fire and things that were of us are going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But things that are of Christ are going to last. There's these going to be precious gems. Well, it says that scripture says we're going to suffer loss. There's going to be regret in our lives. We'll go, man, that was so foolish. I was so into myself as a believer. I should have been about the Lord's business. One of the things that gets my attention is that we're read that Jesus wipes away our tears and they're no more. So we will have some tears in heaven. Why will we have some tears in heaven? Maybe because people that we love aren't there, and that's going to break our hearts. We're going to have this bema seat judgment where we suffer loss, and thankfully Jesus comforts us, and we're not living in a place of regret for for all of eternity. But faithfulness is going to matter, and it determines the responsibility that the Lord gives to us in the millennial kingdom. So be faithful in whatever God's given you to do. God rewards based on faithfulness, not how we value the task. We tend to go, well, this is more valuable over here than this over here. And God says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it unto the Lord. Are you in school? Do it unto the Lord. Do you have a job that you love, that you see a lot of value in? Do it unto the Lord. Do you have a job that is terrible, that you absolutely hate? Be faithful. Do it unto the Lord, because it's going to matter in eternity. Your faithfulness now matters in eternity. We can only imagine what this is going to be like to rule and reign with Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I love doing work with my family. One of my favorite things is to do a project with my wife, and recently we were doing some work in a bathroom, and we just had great fellowship and conversation as we've been doing this project on the weekends for about three, three weekends, and just fun to work together and do that process uh, together. Uh, I love getting under this old truck and working on it with my kids, and you know, there's not too much damage that we can do uh, to this thing. Probably three or four weeks ago, my two younger kids, Eileen and Wyatt, we were in the street laying underneath and cleaning the underneath of the truck, right? It has all these oil leaks with dirt, and it was, it was nasty and grimy and, and gross, but I had so f- much fun being under there with my, my two youngest kids, and we were, we were working together. Now, did we accomplish a whole lot? That's arguable, right? But did we have a good time together? Absolutely, right? And I love our pastoral team at RMC. We've got a really neat uh, pastoral team and a fun staff, and I love being able to labor together with the staff here uh, at the church. I really feel for pastors that are all alone and and aren't able to work together uh, as a team. It's a real joy of my life to work together with our our pastoral team. And I can't imagine what this is going to be like to get to work with Christ, right? To have him rule, to have him reign, to be in a glorified state, and to say, okay, Jesus, what do you have for us today? Uh, Let's do this for a thousand years. And you're like, that seems like a really long time. We're just getting started, right? What's a thousand years for all of, all of eternity? So we as believers have a lot to look forward to. Verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So he gets released and his purpose is still to go out and deceive. This guy is relentless, isn't he? And he goes to the four corners. He goes to Gog and Magog, which we believe to be Russia, leading in uh, to Russia, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand. So he gets all of these people together from the four corners of the earth to come against Christ. They went up on the, the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem, so they surround Jerusalem to attack Christ and the saints, and God pours out his judgment. So this is lesson number four. Environment is not enough. Environment is not enough. Isn't this mind-blowing that they live under the tangible, the visual reign of Christ for a thousand years, and then Satan comes back on the scene in a brief moment, and they're like, Satan, that sounds like a good idea. I want to go with Satan, and let's make war with Jesus, right? Like, how, how is that possible? And we'd like to think that, man, if I was in the perfect environment, I would make the perfect decisions. Not true, not true. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. And during this millennial period, they have still the sinful heart, and when faced with the opportunity, some choose Christ and some choose Satan, don't they? And so we have a deeper problem than just our environment. And it's our sinful hearts that need a savior, that need to be crucified, and our flesh needs to be crucified. So I think we oftentimes need to remember this as parents, don't we? Because we work so hard for our kids to, to be in a good environment. And that's important. We want that for them. But the environment can't fix their sinful heart. Amen? Only Jesus can. And ultimately, they've got to choose Jesus. And that's going to be their personal choice in praying for them to really encounter Jesus. And then we didn't grow up in a perfect environment either, did we? Like, all of us have a story of a dysfunctional family, a family that did their best, but it is sinful. And sometimes for us, we get really upset that, hey, I didn't have the perfect environment. Or if I would have had something different in my environment, that would have changed my outcome. And the gospel is encouraging because the gospel can transcend the environment that you grew up in. Amen? Can transcend the environment that I grew up in. And because Christ has died for me, and has died for you, we don't have to look at our family and go, well, this was my family's fate, so this is going to be my fate. I'm a new creation in, in Christ Jesus. And so this can be both discouraging and encouraging, but it's a good, tangible reminder that the environment's not enough, that we need a Savior that deals with our, our sin, because even if we're in a perfect environment, we could still choose to follow Satan. In verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So thrown into the lake of fire, tormented for all of eternity with the false prophet and with the beast, which is the Antichrist, the final judgment upon the devil, the adversary. Then I saw a great white throne 
and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So now the focus is upon the throne of God, upon God himself who's sitting upon the throne, and people's response to the throne room of God is one of fear of fleeing away from the holiness of God. If it's not for the finished work of Christ, to be robed in Christ's righteousness, it'd be a very fearful thing to come into the presence of God, to come into the holiness of God. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their work, by which things were written in the books. So you've got two sets of people One, that their name is written in the book of life. And how do you get your name written in the book of life? This is the most important reservation to have. You've got to make sure that your name is written in the book of life. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. It's believing in your heart. Well, what does that mean? It's a sincere faith where you trust and you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and acknowledging that he's the Lord of our life. Saying, Jesus, I am choosing for you to be on the throne room of my life. And as we confess, as we believe and confess and invite him to be the Lord of our life, the scripture says that we're saved. Our name is put into the the Lamb's book of life. So as the dead are raised, as the dead are resurrected, and here comes this great white throne judgment, God's going through the book and he's like, ah, your name, there it is. You trusted me for salvation. You enter into eternal life. But then you have this other set and that a variety of books and it's people's works. They rejected Christ as their savior and said, I'm good enough to try to receive salvation on my own. And so now God says, let's go through it. Let's go through the books. Let's open up your life and see how you stand and see how you measure up. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Lazarus the beggar in the gospel died and goes to paradise, which was the holding tank for those who believed in the coming Messiah until Jesus died and rose again, and then they they went to heaven. And on the other side of paradise, you have torment, and that's Hades. Hades is this holding tank for those that reject Christ. They come up out of Hades for this final judgment, to stand before the throne room of God. And this is where when Paul writes, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. At this point, even if they've rejected Christ in the past, they're going to realize you are Christ. You are the Lord. But at this moment, it will be too late. And they're judged each one according to their works. This would be extremely humbling. Could you imagine? I mean, to just to be honest with you guys, I couldn't imagine being held accountable just before you. Not that I have this deep, dark secret that I'm trying to hide from you, but I'm a sinner. And if you saw all my thoughts up on these three screens just for a week, 
let alone for my whole entire life, I'd be running for the door and never come back, right? And that's just the Wednesday night crowd, right? <laughs> that would be so humbling to be judged by my works just, just in front of you. But even more so in front of God, who sees the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So even someone from outwardly who lives a moral life, when you look at the intent of the heart, what was the, what was the motivation of the heart? What are all of the things that people don't see? And so God lays it out. And very quickly we're humbled and we realize our need for the gospel. One of the things I've been thinking about this week is cultivating an awe of God. You know, being in that place of, of being in worship of God. And I think it's continually present tense to realize our need for Jesus to die upon the cross for us. Because if I were judged by my works, look out, right? God has been so gracious to me to not treat me according to my sins and, and pour out the love of Jesus into my life. In verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So, so death and Hades, they're all emptied into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. It's eternal separation from God. It's eternal torment. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is lesson number five, is heaven and hell are very real. Heaven and hell are very real. I want you to look quickly with me at verse one of chapter 21. We're not gonna get into chapter 21 tonight, but the next verse in Revelation is, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was also no more sea. So God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So we literally have heaven and hell described in these two verses. And what determines whether you go to heaven or hell is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. So first, let's apply this to our hearts as believers. Again, we want to look at this section of Scripture of God, what are you speaking to me tonight? Are you in a season of suffering? Is your life getting really hot right now? Well, all of a sudden, that suffering doesn't seem so bad because if you're in Christ, you're not going to hell. Amen? So this is the worst it's ever gonna get for us. And it gives us a new perspective on our lives. We go, okay, it may be difficult right now, but really, I don't have it that bad because I'm going to heaven and I'm not going to hell. And that encourages us. Also, when we talk about everyone being held accountable, maybe you feel like someone in your life didn't get held up to the standard of justice. Well, they're going to have to stand before God. And either their name's written in the book of life and Jesus paid for it, they trusted Christ for salvation. Hopefully they did. I mean, even your worst enemy, I don't think you really long for them to go to hell. If they rejected Christ, then they go to hell and they receive God's judgment. So justice will be served and justice will be played out. And then for us as believers to focus on heaven, you know, what's a greater motivator, hell or heaven? I think both, right? Thankful that I'm not going to hell, but thankful that I'm going to heaven. Now you get to rule and reign with Christ and see Christ and enjoy Christ in all that he has for me. 
But then also for us to apply this in our hearts and our lives is to have a heart for the lost, to have a heart for those that, that don't know Christ as their Savior. I don't know why it's so hard to maintain a burden for people that don't know Jesus. But at least for me and my, my heart and life, I go through seasons. I go through ups and downs. Times where I'm really aware of people that don't know Jesus and praying for them and looking for opportunities to show them the love of Jesus Christ and to share with them the gospel. And then other times where I get distracted, that it's not on the forefront of my heart and on my mind. And as painful as it is, let's take a moment to think about eternity, to think about heaven, and to look around. And no doubt, we're going to make a trip through the throne room of God, looking for our loved ones, looking for our family members, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, to see if they're there, to see if they have eternal life to see if they've made the most important appointment. I'm sure it'll start with our spouse, our kids, our parents, our aunts, our uncles, our nieces, our nephews, our, our immediate family. And I'm sure there's a family member that's coming to mind where you know they have not trusted Christ for salvation. You know? We have that in our family. And am I praying for them? Am I pursuing them? Am I looking for opportunities to share Christ with them? And because it's family, sometimes we deal with all of the fallout of family because they're not believers, right? So it gets messy. They don't know Christ. So it makes relationships difficult sometimes, and it's easy to lose sight of, man, they need Jesus. And so even though this aspect is hard to deal with, I got to keep this in mind that they're eternally lost. And unless something changes, they're in the lake of fire for all of, of eternity. And then to think a little bit broader, to think of neighbors and who are some neighbors that don't know Jesus? Who are some coworkers that don't know Jesus? To even have a heart for a stranger that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. What was Christ's perspective when he gave us the Great Commission. I want us to turn there for just a moment in Matthew 28. Let's look at Matthew 28 really quickly, the, the Great Commission that Jesus gives to us. After his death and resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you think there was anyone questioning Jesus on this at this point? He's just been crucified and he rose from the dead. And he's like, all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. He says, I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples. I want you to introduce them to the gospel and to Jesus and show them the importance of walking in obedience to his command. 
I know like this sounds like a lot, Christ is saying, but I'm with you. I'm with you always in this great commission. But Jesus, as he's sharing this, he knows heaven. He knows the glory of heaven, and he knows how brutal hell is. And he came and he died so that none would perish. God doesn't desire that any would would go to hell. God doesn't delight to put somebody in the lake of fire for all of eternity. He wants them to be saved. So if we could see heaven and we could see hell, how important would it be for us to have a heart for the lost? So let's pray for this in our lives. God, would you burden me afresh for those that don't know you? Would you give me a fresh courage and a fresh boldness to reach out and to share Jesus? When we look at the book of Acts, what took place? It's a supernatural move of God where ordinary sinful people were filled with the Spirit and willing to follow Christ, and they took the gospel out to others. God began to move through their lives and use them. And as we're open to the power of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our lives, saying yes to the Holy Spirit, God begins to move. This isn't a formula. The Great Commission's not, okay, this is how you do it. It's the Holy Spirit loves people, knows people, is working already in people's lives. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to listen and I'm going to follow the work of the Holy Spirit. So there would be some that teach the Bible today that would say hell doesn't exist. But if you say that hell doesn't exist, you're minimizing sin. You're minimizing how brutal sin is. It's really just for sin to be judged with eternal judgment. And we're not seeing the necessity of Jesus dying on the cross for us. If there's no hell, then why did Jesus have to die? Why did God have to send his son to pay the price for our sin so that we could go home to be with the Lord? So two applications and we're done. The first is, if your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life, or you have a question about your name being in the Lamb's Book of Life, get saved tonight. Are you at that point in your heart where you're ready to believe in your heart that Jesus is God, that he died, that he rose again, to turn, to repent from sin, and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life? And if the answer is yes, by all means do it. Come down Find someone on the ministry team. Say, would you pray with me? I'm ready to believe and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Get down on your knees right during worship and believe and confess right where you're at. I believe, Jesus, your God, that you died for me and rose again. Be my Lord. And then share it with somebody, you know? Get on the phone. I'm sure you've got a Christian in your life that's been praying for you. And call them up and you'll say, you, you never know what happened to me tonight at church. I trusted Jesus for salvation and received that free gift of salvation. And then for us as believers to be moved to say, man, I care about this. You know, I care about souls. I care about whether people are going to heaven or hell. And as we know people that don't know Christ as their savior, to truly be burdened and to be led by the Holy Spirit and see the Lord reach people. See, see God expose his love to them. I love seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. It's so exciting. It blows me away every time. That spiritual birth and what the, the Lord's doing. Church, he is moving in your family. The question is, am I in tune to what he's doing? 
he is moving on my street. Am I in tune to, to what he's doing? You know, he's moving in the village inn tonight. But am I in tune to, to what he's doing? He's moving at the Starbucks that we get coffee at all the time, right? I, he's powerful. He can do that. He, he can work in a secular coffee shop, can he, right? He's, he's already moving in this city. He loves people. He has a heart for people. The question is, God, am I available? Am I available to the work and the move that you're doing in the lives of, of lost people? And we don't have to be afraid. We simply have to follow and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to follow. And this is when the Christian life gets really exciting, isn't it? We start to view each day differently as an opportunity for God to reach souls. So let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we want to learn these lessons from the last days, that heaven and hell is very real. And Lord, that really impacts us with the hope of heaven, but also it grieves us for those that don't know you. So we pray for our family members that don't know you, God, that their eyes and their ears would be opened, that they would see their need for you and they turn to you and be saved. We pray for the streets that we live in, the apartment complexes, or this neighborhood right around the church, this community, Colorado Springs. Lord, and would you turn people's hearts to you to see your goodness and to see your salvation. Lord, for those that don't know you, may you introduce yourself to them and may they respond in faith. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.